today we begin a new series. And in, in many ways it dovetails into it, but it's been a series that I've wanted to preach a long time, starting a long, actually years ago. But this series is titled 34384. Now, if you've ever been in jail, you get a number. This is Frank's number. No, no. <laughs> you might recognize it with the backdrop. There's a map there, a Google map on the back. 34384 County Road 63, Grand Rapids, Minnesota. That's what it stands for. And as we approach the series, recognize this. This isn't about the Big C Church. This is about us as a local church. What does God want for us in order to be effective? But let me begin here today with a quick survey. Uh, many of you grew up in elementary years where your parents took you to church. And I want you to raise your hand if that was you growing up. Just how many of you, your parents took you to church on Sunday morning? Okay. Most of you, not every one of you. Let me ask you another question. Did your mom and dad ever sit down with you and explain why? What was the reason that they took you to church? You know, as I was pondering that and thinking back to my childhood, I go, did I ever remember any conversation with mom and dad and say, we had six kids in the family, here's why we go to church. And you know what? I really can't remember a conversation. They might have, but I just don't recall it at all. And, and parents, by the way, this might be a valid conversation at some point with your kids. But here's today, we want to jump into a text, a key text for today. It's important to us even as we look forward in this series. Matthew chapter 16, if you have your Bibles there, you might want to do some underlining here. But let me just give you the setting of, of this passage. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And he took a water taxi across the Sea of Galilee, okay, it was just a boat, to the region of Magadan, and it was there that the Pharisees confronted him as he got out of the boat, and um, he gave them a verbal spanking. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And so he gets back in the boat, he crosses over to another part of the lake, and he gets out, and he begins to walk toward a region called uh, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. And that's where we want to pick it up here. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and again, this is a Roman city, okay, this isn't a, a Jewish city, and, and many people don't believe that he actually uh, went there, okay, but he asked his disciples, What do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, and or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that on on, or you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now realize this conversation is, is taking place in the countryside on some path, and he's headed again the opposite to Jerusalem. You think of kind of that word church and the temple and understand Jerusalem is about 75, 85, maybe even close to 90 miles south of this location here. But as we walk through this, this text here, the statement that he will build this church, I think a lot of times people really don't stop and ponder that statement. Because there is another key issue here, and that it begins with that question, who do you say that I am? So now, now realize the disciples have been following him for about two and a half years, okay? And do you wonder if the disciples ever really understood, he said, why would Jesus care what people think about him? He had just got done verbally spanking the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he really wouldn't have cared. See, this guy that they were following, he was kind of confusing at times. And I suspect that they were even at times skittish in answering his questions. He used a lot of questions uh, as he walked with these men. But all of a sudden, Peter throws out, you know what, you are Christ. But what's on the street, guys? What are people saying about me? And all of a sudden, you know, I don't know if they believed in reincarnation at that point, some of these people, but you're Elijah. Some are saying that you're John the Baptist that came back to life. You're Jeremiah or for sure some prophet that's come back. That's the street talk. Now, you got to remember, these, for some of these men, many of these guys, they weren't at the top of their class. Uh, realize that a lot of them didn't worry about getting straight A's in their school. No valedictorians in this group, no National Honor Society type guys in this group. Matter of fact, some just dropped out and said, we're going to become, we're just going to fish for a living. But look at what he says, the one to one who spoke up quickly. Here's Peter. Look at Simon Peter replied in verse 16. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood had not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You're right, Peter. But he goes on, You don't realize this. You didn't figure this out on your own. I don't think he said this, but Peter, you're not smart enough to do this on your own. It was my Father who revealed it to you. Now, if you're Peter, how would you take that statement? Would that have been encouraging or discouraging? I go, I'm not sure. But look at the next statement, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now here's this phrase. Many people get hung up on this idea of the rock. Who is the rock? Now, you understand, if you're from a Catholic background, you maybe heard this, that Peter was the rock. He was the leader, the first pope of the Catholic Church. 
Now, the Protestant view does not take that. They believe that the rock, the cornerstone, is Christ himself and the reality of the message of the gospel. But I realize that, uh, recognize this, that that really isn't the most critical issue in that statement. The most important one is this. I will build my church. See, they're standing on a road. And Jesus goes, I'm going to build my church. Now, the word church is an English word here for us. But there is a Greek word that we need to dig a little bit into. I'll put it up on the screen. And some people pronounce it ecclesia. Some ecclesia, for some would, would say it that way. But this is the word that was translated to the word church. And it's the first time it's recorded in the New Testament, and it's used actually quite often after this point. But here's where we need to dig today. The word church, what does it mean for you? For you. How does it fit into this place, 34384, County Road 63? What does the word church mean to you as you walked into this building today? How does it fit with the people that are attending in this space with you this morning? If you're a parent, what do you tell your kids about the word church? How would you explain it to them? You know, when I was growing up, I, I was thinking back and just kind of pondering back to my growing up days. And Sunday morning, there were six kids in our family. I was a second to the youngest. And my dad or my mom would say, load them up. And we'd head outside to the 61 Ford station wagon. And back then, you know, there's, so there's eight people in the car, seat belts off. You didn't really worry about them. The two youngest, usually the youngest of us, would jump into way in the back. And, you know, you could rattle around in the back a little bit. And we would head to downtown Cocado, where our church existed. And we would walk into that building, and that was the church. See, see, the question is, what does church mean to you today? I, I, I realize as I pondered it, it, it's changed for me deeply. But over time, people come to conclusions about that word church. Young or old, you have a conclusion about it. Matter of fact, let me walk you through some of the conclusions of what people believe about church. If you follow along in the outline there, uh, to fill in that first blank for you, and this is, understand, this is about the local church. What does the local church mean? And it's this, a local church is a preaching, teaching center. It's the place where you come to hear a sermon. Uh, Pastor Johnson was the growing up years in elementary and, and junior high for me. He spent three years in Revelation every Sunday. It was tough going to church as a youngster. And understand this, we would go to Sunday school first. There was no, we didn't have double services, but we'd go to Sunday school, and then we would go to the second service, or to the first service after that. And we were getting fed spiritually both in Sunday school and the service. Now, no children's church existed back then. 
And matter of fact, when I got a little bit older, when I didn't have to sit for my, with my parents, the goal was to try to get a spot up in the balcony. There was three rows in the balcony. And we could, if we, if we could get to the back row before anybody else got there, you could slide down, a bunch of us guys would slide down just a little bit, and the pastor didn't make eye contact with you. And you could make paper airplanes and write and do all kinds of stuff there. And occasionally a paper airplane would actually float over the balcony down to the bottom, and everybody would look up to see who it was. It was not me, I'll, I'll tell you that. But that's what church was for me. But the question going back, what did Jesus envision when he said, I am going to build my church? Did he envision a a, a teaching center? Building a preaching center where people would hear about my preaching and my teachings and that all that will be recorded after this. Is it a spot where we send our kids to learn? Is it just an educational spot where we teach our kids to obey things? See, walking along that path, walking with these group of 12 men, was that what Jesus had in mind? Was a preaching center? Was that it? Or or maybe there was another piece to it. And that second bullet for you there, maybe a local church is this. It's a place to worship. And I think I believe that growing up. It's about getting together and singing songs together. It's where we worship. It's where we read the scriptures because those are important. And because you understand we're creatures of habit, we love to create traditions that help us even worship. You know, traditions actually make us feel safe and secure And they create a sense of space. And and you think of the way you even decorate a room and such and how that becomes a place of worship. And even think back into your growing up years where there are creeds that you always read or were used to at the time. The Lord's Prayer, maybe. But then even songs, when we sing songs, when they're familiar, they become a tradition that makes us feel good and secure. But is that what Jesus envisioned Walking on that that road, and he said, I am going to build my church. Is that what he envisioned? See, I understand this is a very important view for many people. The church, the place, has become a sacred spot where we can meet God. It's a space for worship and tradition to take place. But here's where i got to give you a little history lesson here today. That centers around the word church. The word ecclesia or ecclesia was translated church first into the Latin language. It, it was late in the fourth century. And Latin became the official language of the, the leaders within the church, the, the priests, they all spoke in Latin. And the common people would speak in Greek or some some type as well. But understand, as the church began to grow and multiply and spread out, headed up into Europe and into England, and all of a sudden there was people that are going, we want the Bible in more than Latin. 
and Luther officially translates the New Testament into German. But there was a guy by the name of William Tyndale in England that, that has this idea that he felt like God was calling him to translate the Bible, or at least begin the, with the New Testament, into English so people could begin to read the scriptures. That was, this was 1522. So he gets a copy of Luther's Bible and uses that, but he also gets a hold of manuscripts in the Greek that were actually older and more authoritative than the Latin Vulgate, which is the official Catholic Bible of that era. And Tyndale begins to make a copy into English, and he ends up going to the Bishop of London. And he tells him, and he presents his plans to say, I'm going to translate into the English language. And immediately this bishop said, stop it. Don't go any farther. This is heretical. Do not do this. Well, Tyndale didn't take no for an answer. For an answer. He heads over to the mainland in Europe. And he begins to work, but he was snitched on and said he didn't stop it. And they try to catch him, but he escapes and he goes to Worms, Germany. And it was there that he completed the New Testament in 1526. So it was about a four years for him to translate the, the New Testament into English. Now, what's the deal here? How does it fit with us? Tyndale's translation was condemned and it was banned. Matter of fact, in England, they tried to, in Great Britain, they tried to gather up all the copies that, that were printed out and they burned them. And understand, he was charged, Tyndale was charged for mistreating the ancient texts and he was actually put to death as a result of it. And the charge was you are creating things that are against the doctrine of the church. And understand this, one of the key words that he changed differently than the Latin Vulgate was the word church. Was the word church. Now, again, this is where it gets complicated because the word church, when it was went from Greek to Latin, they grabbed a German word. I think the word, how you pronounce it, is kirk. It's... But the German, the way they understood it, the way it was translated in German, it, it really meant this, a sacred place of worship. See, in the Greek culture, though, it did not mean a place. In the Greek culture, as they understood it, it was really the word assembly. The assembly of people it wasn't about an organization. It wasn't about a place. And when you draw in the Hebrew understanding of an assembly, one of the nuances there, it means a called out people that gather together. So he took the German word, which was really a place of sacred worship, and in those early days, as, as Tyndale translated, he went from church, he used this word in his English version, congregation. The word congregation. 
Now, there are a couple of other key words that got him into trouble as well. One of them in the Latin Vulgate, where the word priest was there, he translated it elder. Okay? And he changed the word penance. Some of you know that word. And he changed it to repentance. And he changed the word charity, which was in the Latin Vulgate, to the word love. And those changes is why he was put to death. See, they viewed it as a challenge and to the structures and the doctrine of the official church. But, but catch this, Tyndale was right in its translation of those words, in their original meaning. It was not about a sacred place. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, understand this, it is not about a building. It's about the gathering of a called out people. The church does not equal the structure where the word of God is taught, where we sing together. It's not the structure. The church is not about a building, a sacred place. So people understand this, and here's where another belief about church exists, to fill in that, those, those blanks there for you, the next bullet. A local church isn't about a place. It's about being a part of the larger family of God. We're, as long as you're a believer, you're a part of the church, and that's true. But here's the default setting and where some people begin to head. I'm a part of the family of God. I'm a part of the universal church. Therefore, I don't have to worry about a local church. It's not that important. And see, they head down this road. I don't need to be a part of a local congregation. I'm a child of God. I don't have to put myself under somebody's earthly authority. And many people today accuse the local church of just being a business. But see, I'm a part of God's church. And it's, I understand many people have gone this path, and it's a lot of younger people, not all of them, but a lot of younger people are going down in this belief here. But when people default to just this understanding that I'm a part of the big church, but the small church, the, the, the local church doesn't matter. I, I want to do this. Eh. Wrong. Wrong. See, that belief is never supported by Jesus. It's never supported by the New Testament church. It's not supported by church history. Matter of fact, church history would tell us this. When those first churches were birthed, they believed that if you were not an active member of a local congregation, a local gathering of people, that you more than likely were not a true follower of Jesus Christ. They assumed that if you were a follower of Jesus, that you were a part of a local congregation. So here's what I did. I tried to write a fourth view. And this is my own words, and to fill in the blanks there, here's what I said. The local church is a called-out group of Christ followers who meet in a particular community, a location, that are called and invited to build Christ's church 
and to expand the kingdom of God. Now, let me jump back to these 12 men. They're walking in the countryside. So he states this, I'm going to build my gathering of people. I'm going to build my congregation. That's what they were hearing. And the gates of Haiti won't stand against it. You know, again, some of these guys are looking around, and I don't know if they could count the 12 or not. They're going, one, two, three, four. What's after four? You know, all of a sudden, 12 guys. And Jesus is saying, you're building right here. You're starting to build the church. See, they would have looked and go, but the temple is 80 miles away. I think some of them would have gone, Jesus, are you dreaming? See, this actually would have been a little bizarre for these guys. It would have felt foolish, the words that Jesus was, was, was telling them. I'm going to build my congregation with vast amounts of people. Is a big assembly. But here, I, I need to fast forward a bit, because after the cross, after he's resurrected, he gathers them together, and understand he's, he's reinstated Peter, and Peter's a spokesman for the church at this point. And he tells these 12 men, guys, I got to go. I got to leave this earth. And he goes, remember what I've told you. You're going to be part of me building my church. I've given you now the great commission to go and make disciples, teaching those to obey. And in just days, the first local church is going to begin. It's going to begin with a congregation. Matter of fact, in a place, in Jerusalem. See, this is so much more than just the universal church. This was a local church that was going to sprout up and begin. Let me give you Acts chapter 1 here. I want to show you what happened here. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, just stop there. Again, these guys weren't the quickest guys. They're still worried about Rome and overthrowing the Roman government. And that just wasn't, they, they couldn't let that go. But look at verse 7. Jesus responds, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. You catch that? Jesus going up into heaven. What a sight. What a, what a time to be a, to see that take place. But here, disciples, you're to make my church, build my church, my congregation. You are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the nations to the end of the earth. Now, I don't think they had any idea how big earth was and where, where they were at, all of these nations. But they head back to Jerusalem, and they wait according to the instructions of Jesus, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit does come upon them, and, this, and Peter all of a sudden gains power. And he realizes he's got to tell people about what's just happened. And he begins to preach sermons. 
And he keeps preaching day after day. And understand this, his sermons weren't about some four-point outline. He wasn't preaching about sanctification. He wasn't preaching about free will and predestination. It wasn't some style of worship that he was talking about. It wasn't just to attract people. Matter of fact, he didn't go back to the Old Testament and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to study Daniel today and we're going to figure out the end times. He didn't go there. Now the Holy Spirit came upon him and he gave Peter and these other people power to be witnesses. A witness. Can, can I give you kind of a summary of Peter's sermons? Let me put it on the screen. People of Jerusalem, you killed them. God raised him. Say you're sorry. I think that's the summary of what he preached. See, people went around and they began to meet with other people and their friends. And it says that they had great boldness. People were getting arrested because they were so bold. They just weren't tiptoeing around. The first church in Jerusalem was not very seeker sensitive. I can tell you that today. They were told to go make disciples, to be a part of raising up Christ's congregation. His gatherings. And how long did it take for people who responded to him to gather together? Almost immediately. Immediately. They started gathering together. And we'll look at that in days ahead. But I can't help but thinking at that point, people are starting to gather, and there's some guy... He's going, yeah, but you know, I can be a church out in a fishing boat by myself. I go, no. I can go to Galilee and fish and be a church. You go, no. Now, let me give you a little bit more of what he was saying. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 40. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How about church growth for that first church? 3,000 for the first church of Jerusalem. It wasn't the first Baptist church of Jerusalem. It was the first church of Jerusalem. And it says at the end of the chapter that at that day they began to gather in the temple courts. It was the only place that was big enough that would hold these, this group of people. But even there, it wasn't talking about the teachings of Jesus. They couldn't be silent. They kept talking about Jesus. But it wasn't all again the doctrinal stuff. It wasn't even so much about the Great Commission, teaching them to obey. See, what fueled this group where 3,000 people were added to that first congregation? Let me give you a hint to it. Look at Acts 4.33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify, and this was their main point, to the resurrection of of the Lord Jesus. Their king lived. 
Now, understand the context of Jerusalem. They knew about who Jesus was. He had a reputation. And in our culture, people don't even know who Jesus is, okay? But back then, the city was ready to hear that you killed Jesus. Repent. But you realize that as they began this first gathering of the people, there were no pews, there were no crosses, there was no traditions, there was no regular set of music, songs that they would sing. But the question is, what fueled that church, that local church? But maybe it needs to come back to us. What fuels us as a local church to get up every Sunday morning and come to this place that we gather together in. Is it the only reason you want a good sermon? Is that what fuels you to get up on Sunday morning? Or is it because you want your kids to be in Sunday school? That's the reason that fuels you to come and gather in this place. See, what fuels us even to serve a church at this church at 34384 County Road 63, what fuels it? Is there something bigger than just getting a good sermon? Is there vision bigger than a Sunday school for kids? Matter of fact, what fuels us to add space as we look ahead to build something? See, it really isn't about a building. It isn't about a sacred space. What fuels us? As I was thinking about this last night again, let me make this statement. I want this church gathering to grow. And I hope you have a desire for it to grow. No, not because we we, we can... be proud because the chairs are all full. That's not the issue. We want a church to grow because Christ says he wants to build his church. We want to build Christ's congregation. We want other churches to be growing. Why? Because of that verse where, we, where God is working in the hearts of people, where he's, he's putting, taking a, a hard heart, a heart of stone, and replacing it, and people become God-willed rather than self-willed. You see, they had a motivation back then in those early days. It wasn't, what about, what's in it for me? They had a bigger vision that says this, Jesus is going to build his church, and the gates of hell... For even local churches will not stand against it. They wanted the church to grow. They weren't satisfied with 12 people, 12 men meeting together. They weren't satisfied with 120 people meeting together. We want a church where everybody knows everybody. You catch 3,000 people coming together in one day, and you go, do you think they knew everybody in that group? The answer is absolutely not. But they were energized. They wanted to tell about that the Savior, that Jesus died and he was resurrected and he's alive. And bad people had crucified him, but the Father raised him from the dead. 
and they wanted other people's to people to know this Jesus that they knew and they believed in. See, Jesus said, I am going to build my church. And he's saying that to us today at 34384. And we are to be witnesses to Jesus coming back again. We're witnesses to his death, to the penalty of the sins that were placed upon his body. And the Father resurrecting him out of that grave. And he wants us to have more people know that. And he wants us maybe to start new congregations. But I know this, he wants us to be a witness to Grand Rapids, to Bovee, to Hill City, to Cohasset, to Coleraine, that he wants us to become a church that's part of Christ's growing church to make a difference in the kingdom of heaven. That more and more people would meet the Jesus because he's the reason why we gather together. It's not a good sermon. It's not a Sunday school. It's not about the music that we sing. It's a gathering together because of Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, as he laid the foundation with these group of 12 men